DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, the EU reaches a deal with Viktor Orban to release critical aid to Ukraine. But what do the tensions in the run-up to the summit reveal about the rocky road ahead? We get the view from Brussels. And we have Putin's best servant sitting at the table in the European Council, blocking our support and our credibility at this crucial stage. And from Budapest. But on the other hand, they also feel that Brussels is really too imperialistic. Also, as Europe's farmers' protests continue, we hear from a French motorway blockade and a food systems expert with an ambitious vision for the future of how we feed and farm. You could almost hear the collective sigh of relief from Brussels this Thursday as it was announced that a deal had been reached at a specially convened summit to release 50 billion euros worth of aid for Ukraine. The hold-up had been due to the opposition of one man, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who had been blocking the required unanimous approval on a multi-year budget since December. A deal has been reached this time, but as Terry Schultz reports, no one in Brussels expects the problems to end here. Patience is finally running out with Viktor Orban's repeated blockades of European Union unanimity and what's officially called his serious and persistent breaches of EU values. A session of the European Parliament in January was devoted to recapping the December meeting of EU leaders and previewing the special February 1st summit required because of Orban's rejection of aid to Ukraine. There, lawmaker after lawmaker demanded the bloc do something to stop him. Here's German Green Group leader Terry Reinke. Ukrainians are fighting also for our freedom. And we have Putin's best servant sitting at the table in the European Council, blocking our support and our credibility at this crucial stage. This is a joke, and this is a very bad joke especially when the member states actually have the tools to stop this. These tools include freezing more funds intended for Hungary or even stopping Orban and his government from having a vote in EU meetings under Article 7.2 of the EU treaty, which has never been used. On January 18th, a majority of EU parliamentarians approved a non-binding resolution calling for that. But it's not something the European Parliament can do. It can only pressure EU leaders and the European Commission to initiate it. The measure also demands demanded an investigation into why the commission unfroze more than 10 billion euros for Budapest just before a key vote on starting membership talks with Ukraine. Orban abstained from that vote by going to the bathroom. Finnish lawmaker Petri Sarvama had already circulated a petition throughout the legislature asking his colleagues to support suspension of voting rights. Speaking ahead of the February 1st European Council meeting, Sarvama said whatever happened there would not deter him from continuing to push for this sanction. The bigger uh, development on, on, on Article 7 uh, will, of course, take a little bit more time. But but if if the, the deal falls and Hungary vetoes, then I think things will move very fast. 
maybe even surprisingly fast. Yana Samanalidis, a senior policy expert with the European Policy Center, agrees that for the first time, this is actually possible, whether or not it's probable. Orban had always been one step ahead politically of the others. He was actually outmaneuvering often member states and EU institutions because he knows how the EU operates. He knows that, you know, the others, in this case 26, have to get their act together, have to agree. But now you see that there is more of a readiness also on the side of the 26 to increase the political pressures uh, and play, you know, the political hard game with him. Um, And let's see how he will react. Incidentally, in July, it's Hungary's turn as the rotating president of the Council of the European Union, which means it will chair all gatherings of ministers for the following six months. The bloc may be simultaneously considering removing Hungary's voting rights from the meetings it will be leading. Terry Schultz, DW, Brussels. So that's the view from Brussels. But what about Budapest? How have the weeks of sour communication and will-he-won't-he suspense played domestically for Viktor Orban? What has he stood to gain from keeping the EU waiting right up until the last minute for a decision on funds for Ukraine? And what does this indicate about the challenges that lie ahead? To find out, I spoke to our Budapest correspondent Stefan Boss, who explained how the Techi run-up to the summit had looked from Viktor Orban's perspective. Obviously, he wants to maintain good relations with uh, Russia, in part because uh, Hungary is very much dependent on uh, natural gas supplies and oil supplies uh, from Russia, uh, much more even than many uh, Western countries. Uh, The other uh, side of the story is really that um, he feels that um, in the backyard of Hungary in Ukraine, hundreds of thousands of people are dying, including also, I have to say, ethnic Hungarians who have been uh, called up to fight uh, in the army. And uh, he says it's only common sense to end this uh, conflict because uh, he feels uh, it cannot be won on the battlefield. And he hopes that um, the EU will support him in his call for uh, peace talks. And even if that would mean, uh, presumably, uh, that uh, Ukraine would uh, lose uh, some of its territory. What about uh, Hungarian public opinion more generally, Stefan? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, if you speak with uh, people in Budapest, uh, there is uh, quite some criticism uh, towards uh, the Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Uh, But outside Budapest, uh, I would say many people would agree with him. Uh, They also see it as a fight for the survival of Hungary and also a a fight for sovereignty. Uh, They feel that um, uh, Brussels is too much intervening in their everyday life. But on the other hand, they also feel that um, Brussels is really uh, too um, imperialistic. And that's also how Orban explained it. He said uh, Brussels is really becoming uh, behaving like in Moscow in the past. And he feels the EU is uh, becoming an empire uh, intervening in um, Hungary's daily affairs. And of course, that's also part, I have to say, of his uh, election campaign ahead of the European elections. So all that plays a role in Hungary's position, I think. 
in that context, the context of um, Hungarian popular opinion being very mistrustful of what it sees as a imperialistic instinct on the part of Brussels, a story which the Financial Times ran this week, which was based on what appears to have been a leaked memo drafted by Brussels uh, bureaucrats. It's very important to say that this is not um, an official document. It is just that, a leaked memo. We don't actually know who leaked it or why. And it is just the, the Financial Times that it was leaked to. But that story was uh, about uh, the memo apparently indicating a plan on the part of certainly certain elements in Brussels to sabotage the Hungarian economy as a way of gaining leverage. How was that story received in, in Budapest? Stefan? Well, you know, uh, the Hungarian prime minister was asked uh, about it that a, a senior uh, European Council official had dismissed the information uh, published by the Financial Times. But Orban said, uh, we are not uh, just out of kindergarten. And he said that uh, if the document published in the Financial Times describes a financial blockade against Hungary in detail, such a scenario exists for sure. Now, from a Brussels perspective, there are uh, two sort of crucial dates coming up that are causing existential angst. Uh, one of them being, of course, the upcoming EU parliamentary elections. And then in July, none other than uh, Hungary and Viktor Orban uh, is set to take over the rotating presidency of the Council of Europe. Is this a timeline that is being anticipated with... Uh, well, how, how is this timeline being anticipated uh, in, in Budapest, Stefan? The government of Hungary says uh, it sees no reason why Hungary should not get uh, the EU presidency. They uh, say they are preparing for it. Uh, they see no problem in hosting it, despite, of course... Uh, concerns in Brussels about the rule of law here and I have to say also about a crackdown uh, on uh, press freedom. I mean, I, I myself and some other colleagues were even on a black list here. So clearly there are some issues. On the other hand, Hungary feels uh, that this is more a debate about uh, its views and about uh, how it uh, sees uh, the future of Ukraine than about uh, those issues I mentioned. So a rocky road ahead, Stefan. I mean, would it be fair to say that the EU has everything to lose and Orban has everything to gain? <laughs> it's an interesting question. Well, of course, um, if uh, the EU will not compromise with uh, the prime minister, then there is the danger of uh, Hungary really expressing its veto over very important uh, issues. Uh, on the other hand, of course, it's uh, quite amazing that a country of less than 10 million people can have so much influence within the EU. So, uh, you know, there is a lot of frustration uh, over this. But I think in the end, uh, there will be a compromise. Uh, they need each other clearly. But uh, that remains to be seen whether indeed that will play out as uh, Brussels uh, hopes it will uh, be. Our Budapest correspondent, Stefan Boss, there. As news of Thursday's deal broke, Viktor Orban, by the way, was posting pictures of himself on social media, walking around tractors ahead of a farmers' protest in Brussels. In neighbouring France, farmers have also been taking to the streets, engaged in what is promising to be a protracted and bitter struggle with the government and also the European Commission in Brussels. 
Although the government quickly satisfied one demand that sparked the movement, restoring a subsidy on diesel fuel for farm vehicles that it had scrapped, the farmers are refusing to return to their fields before other measures are taken to protect their livelihoods. In the meantime, they are blocking motorways and roundabouts across France, with several units of tractor-borne protesters even surrounding the capital and threatening to blockade the central wholesale food market at Rangis. John Lawrenson has this report from a roundabout south of Paris. A teenager wearing the traditional French peasant beret blasts on his hunting horn while fellow farmers distribute potatoes chosen because they're more or less heart-shaped to motorists. But as the saying almost goes, there's no such thing as a free potato. A few minutes ago, tractors moved in from all sides of the roundabout, not to block traffic completely, but to seriously bottleneck it. Now motorists are stuck in queues as far as the eye can see in all directions. Simon Thierry, who is also wearing a beret, has a 200-hectare farm where he grows wheat, barley and potatoes and raises sheep. We're here to alert the government and Europe in general to the farming crisis. On this roundabout, we're all organic farmers, but we have plenty of demands in common with all the farmers demonstrating around the country. On fuel subsidies, for example, or the need to reduce bureaucracy. And like so many farmers, it's very difficult for us to make ends meet. We are now just free people for the whole farm, and we are struggling to keep one employee. We love this job, but we work too hard. We're angry because there's no recognition of the positive impact we have on society and the environment. Some drivers honk their horns in support as they drive by, even though they've been stuck in traffic jams caused by the farmers. Wheat grower and miller Jérôme Chenvert says it warms his heart to know they're not alone. Many French farmers want a radical change of direction, not only in France but in Europe. They reject the EU's Green Deal that aims to make farming carbon neutral, dramatically reduce the use of pesticides and fertiliser and take 10% of land out of production. Organic farmers have a different perspective on that, but they also want Europe to change tack when it comes to free trade. Jérôme Chenvert wants more tariff barriers, protection. What we need is decent prices. Only then will we get a decent income. To do that, what we have to do is stop imports from outside Europe. Because outside of Europe, farmers don't have to abide by the same norms as we do. 20 years ago, a ton of organic wheat was worth between 400 and 500 euros. This year, we got 200. As the traffic queues grow longer, I walk down the lines of cars asking drivers whether they support the farmers. Nearly all do. This woman says they're right, they must keep going. Things have to change. I'm in favour, says this driver. They're badly paid for everything they do. They're right to fight. National opinion polls confirm this popularity, showing over 80% of French people support the farmers, despite the considerable disruption they're bringing to the country. John Norrinson, DW, L'Envilliers, France. 
coming up in a minute. A new report into the food systems of the future celebrates a timely release. Could it provide answers to some of the problems faced by Europe's farmers? That's still to come here on Inside Europe with me, Kate Laycock in Germany. The farmers' protests are yet another indication that something is seriously wrong with our current system of food production. By timely coincidence, this week marked the release of a new and incredibly ambitious report produced by leading economists and scientists of the Food System Economics Commission, FSEC. In the report, the scientists provide the most comprehensive modelling of the impacts of two possible futures for the global food system to date, our current trends pathway and the food system transformation pathway. Now, the current trends pathway is bleak. The report's modelling shows that food systems are currently destroying more value than they create, leading to food insecurity, biodiversity loss and driving around a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. The food system transformation pathway, however, could create up to $10 trillion worth of benefits a year, improve human health and ease the climate crisis. To find out more, I spoke to FSEC Commissioner and Head of Climate Resilience at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, Professor Hermann Lotzer-Kampen, who immediately told me how fortuitous the report's timing had turned out to be. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting. I come from a farm myself, <laughs> from, a, from a dairy farm in northern Germany. And so actually there was quite a direct connection to the release of our report and the current protests of farmers. And I think livestock production, that's uh, that's the main challenge in, in the transformation, because one has to acknowledge that we are creating, or agriculture and food systems create all these um, external and hidden costs. But in the current farming system, livestock production, so meat and and dairy production, creates a high share of the value added uh, in farming. So by demanding this transformation, it's also important to show options for for change or new opportunities for farmers. And that's a real challenge because um, you have to change the demand side, of course. I mean, livestock farmers say, well, as long as people demand meat, we, we will produce it. We need to produce it. But also, if the demand would change, then farmers would need to find new opportunities. And that's the big challenge, I think, in the near term over the next uh, 10 to 20 years, I guess. How quickly do markets for alternative uh, products uh, emerge uh, and how quickly can, can farmers adjust to that? We take that into account to some degree in, in the scenarios. So, for example, if there is a higher demand for plant-based food, you have additional demand for, let's say, legumes like peas and beans and uh, things like that, which creates new markets for farmers who grow that. Um, But we are also including an additional demand for 
bio-based materials because we have to consider, I mean, it's not only the farming system which needs to transform uh, for climate change mitigation, also the energy sector and, and the industrial sector. So there will be an additional demand for bioplastics, for bio-based materials, for buildings and so on. And this will also create additional demand for farmers so that we see there is the, the potential for shifting away out of livestock production and towards new products. But how quickly and how economically viable for the single farm that is, is of course up to debate and we need to see how, how, this, can, how this can go forward. And it also depends on the policy, uh, the, the, the political measures, the policy instruments. And maybe we should also talk a little bit about that, what policymakers could and should do to actually implement this, this transformation. Well, yes, please. I mean, if you've got uh, concrete tools there, um, please lay them on the table, Professor. The first is not surprisingly on, on dietary change. So incentivizing the uptake of plant-based uh, and low meat, low dairy uh, diets. Then there is the area of repurposing of current subsidies. I mean, the agriculture sector is heavily subsidized in many countries, uh, particularly in the EU. And the current subsidies are not targeted towards greenhouse gas emission reduction or biodiversity protection. And there has been a discussion about targeting the existing subsidies towards better achieving those those goals which are on the table. The third element is, is new policy instruments, for example, pricing of greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, in the EU, including the agriculture sector into the emission trading scheme or uh, um, taxing nitrogen surpluses. So new instruments which also uh, generate uh, government revenues, which can then be used for financing uh, social safety nets. The fourth area is innovation. We certainly need a lot of innovation along the food value chain, innovation in farming, more efficient fertilizer use, precision farming, but also in the food sector, new food products, alternatives for to meat and dairy, whether they are plant-based or based on other technologies. And the fifth area is then social safety nets and compensation payments to make sure that poor consumers, but also low-income farmers and farm workers are able to participate in the transformation. So these are the five policy priority areas which we, which we sketched out. And are you confident that you will be able to have those conversations? Because I mean, one thing that one hears time and time again from farmers is um, it's the same concerns. You know, um, farmers are um, suffering a, a massive mental health crisis, um, much more uh, at risk of suicide than other professional groups, a sense of not being listened to, a sense of uh, dismay that their role in society is not valued as it once was, a, a sense that um, they are they see themselves as custodians of the land, but that environmentalists now have identified them as part of the problem. Do you think that these conversations will be possible? I mean, are you having these conversations already? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, my, my sister and her husband, they are, they are managing the farm where I grew up. Uh, the farm actually last summer started to use a, a milking robot. So they are also into new technologies there. But an important thing also from the report is in the current debate about farmers' protests, whether it's in Germany or France and other countries, is there is a lack of a long-term vision where the food, ag and food sector could move towards to. And I think this was quite nice to see. I think this report provides a substantial outlook and, and vision where I think the ag and farming sector would need to go to 
to solve many of the problems we have, also to fulfill the requirements which have already been agreed upon, like the Paris Agreement or, or other international agreements. And so I think this, this report can uh, help uh, in the discussion, in the political discussion between farmers unions, governments, uh, other civil society organizations to, to create a joint vision, which then can be pursued by uh, policymakers and also well farmers and, and everyone else within the food system to um, yeah to achieve those those goals so i we certainly hope that it's helpful in this uh, direction i was speaking to fsec commissioner and head of the climate resilience research department at the potsdam institute for climate impact research professor hermann lotzer kampen this is inside europe and i'm kate laycock in germany This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, Norway's Prime Minister puts his full weight behind the Arctic Council. We are Russia's neighbour. You don't choose your geography. We want to have necessary contact between military authorities in the high north. That's important to avoid misunderstandings and to keep stability. It would not serve any purpose, anybody's interest to, to, to close down the Arctic Council. Coders gather in Brussels for two days of all things open source. Estonian teachers go back to work. Depopulated Italian villages get a lease of new life. And sustainability is the watchword at Madrid's International Tourism Trade Fair. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. The Arctic is home to four million people across eight nations. But the region's sparse population belies its importance to the rest of the world. This week, top politicians, scientists and many others met in Tromsø in the Arctic north of Norway for the Arctic Frontiers Conference. On the agenda, new geopolitical tensions, vast untapped natural resources, accelerating climate change and the rights of indigenous peoples. Lars Bervanger was there to keep an eye on things for us. Winter here in Tromsø leaves you in no doubt that you're in the Arctic. There are the beautiful northern lights, of course, there's the cold, the dark, and this week particularly severe weather has wreaked havoc with air, sea and road transport. Still, hundreds of delegates from around the world have made it here to discuss how to shape the future of the Arctic region. 
My name is Mark Lantain. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Tromsø. The Arctic is opening up in many ways, economically, environmentally, politically, and strategically, and it's all happening all at the same time. Since Mark Lantain began focusing on international relations in the Arctic, the geopolitical situation has changed dramatically. Of the eight Arctic nations, the largest, Russia, is no longer welcome in political discussions, and the other seven are either already NATO members or joining soon. Russia does consider itself to be a very primary Arctic state, just look at the geography, and there's a lot of concern that the... Uh, poor relations between the West and Russia will spill over into the Arctic in unpredictable ways. Now, as long as Russia wages war in Ukraine, there is no prospect of a return to full Arctic cooperation. But some things cannot wait. The Arctic is warming four times faster than the global average. Climate change is arguably the most pressing issue being discussed here at this conference. As a Norwegian official said about uh, two years ago, the Arctic doesn't have a pause button. So politically, regardless of what's going on, the Arctic is facing a lot of climate change challenges. And the debate going on right now is, is it possible to come to significant agreements about climate change from here without Russia? The main body driving political cooperation on Arctic issues is the Arctic Council. Low-level contact with Russia remains, but Norway's vast neighbour in the east no longer sits at the top table. A challenge, accepts David Balton. He is US President Joe Biden's top advisor on Arctic affairs. The Arctic Council is still the premier institution for circumpolar diplomacy, even if it is hard to work with Russia these days. Uh, but it is also true that the Arctic Council is struggling now. We are uh, working in a way that we have not been working before because participation of Russia is so limited. Now, Norway plays a particularly central part in Arctic cooperation, not just as a host to this conference, but because it currently holds the chairship of the Arctic Council. I'm off now to meet the Norwegian Prime Minister, Jonas Garstöre, who is adamant that the Arctic Council must continue to play a central role. We are Russia's neighbour. You don't choose your geography. We want to have necessary contact between military authorities in the high north. That's important to avoid misunderstandings and to keep stability. And I believe the Arctic Council is one such institution that is important to maintain because the Arctic matters are so critical, not only for us living in the Arctic, but for the for the whole world. So we are maintaining the work of the Arctic Council it would not serve any purpose, anybody's interest, to, to, to close down the Arctic uh, Council. The Arctic also has important deposits of metals and minerals needed for batteries, wind turbines and other tools of the green transition. Extracting these has sometimes set Arctic nations on a collision course with some of the estimated 500,000 indigenous people living here. Six indigenous peoples' organizations have permanent participation status in the Arctic Council. My name is Silje Karine Motka and I am the president of the Sami parliament on Norwegian side. Do you feel that the indigenous peoples of the Arctic are involved enough when the Arctic states come together to discuss the future? We have a great potential in broadening the perspectives and also addressing a lot of very challenging issues. And uh, that is something I do truly believe we need to solve. 
What are the greatest challenges for, for you as uh, indigenous peoples? We are part of nature, we are not ruling the nature. So in our perspective, the threats against the biological diversity is also a threat towards us and humanity. And I do think also we are uh, struggling with extractive industries security politics and the threats we see because of the competition on all the, the valuable resources we have in, in the Arctic. There are clearly many competing interests across many fast-changing issues in the Arctic and things will continue to change. Melting sea ice is opening up new shipping lanes for longer periods of the year in waters largely controlled by Russia. China, not an Arctic nation, is taking a keen interest in the opportunities this might create for their trade. Another chapter in this remote but increasingly important region of the world. Lars Bevanger, DW, Tromsø. From the Arctic, we shift our attention back to Brussels now. No, not to the EU summit, but to a very different type of event altogether. FOSTEM. Now, I have to admit that this conference of open source software developers, FOSTEM stands for Free and Open Source Software Developers European Meeting, was not actually on our radar at Inside Europe. Until, that is, we received a tip-off from a listener. So, intrigued, we rang up one of the event's founding members, Mark van der Bore, who's seen the informal meetup he helped start over 20 years ago mushroom into something so big that he told me this year some 10,000 people are expected to attend. That's pretty extraordinary for a non-professional event, I remarked, and quick as a flash, Mark put me straight. It is a professional event, but run by volunteers. You know, it's it's always fun to see how our visitors are also our collaborators. I don't know if I'm at liberty of mentioning names, but like, for example, a professor of uh, University of Bologna on Sunday evening is cleaning up the venue together with us, literally putting stuff into dustbins because he sees value in this. <laughs> well, that's a very charming and uh, probably a very telling image as well, which really gives a sense of the sort of spirit of the open source community. I mean, it sounds almost like a throwback to the more early, uh, perhaps more idealistic, anarchistic days of the internet when it really was something that people were discovering together. Now, FOSTEM has been going for 25 years, Mark, and you were one of its founding members. Take me back to that time. What was it like? Well, it was very simple. We were basically students or early starting professionals and very excited about this entire field where people would be sharing and collaborating on software. This was something relatively new at the time. We were in the right spot at the very right time and it seems like we executed relatively well because we still exist after all this time, and we've only grown uh, in size and recognition since then, so, yeah. 
Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's just grown almost exponentially, hasn't it? I mean, you're at, what, 10,000 participants this year. It's extraordinary and it's still volunteer run. Must mean an awful lot of work for you and your collaborators, Mark. And I know that you've got a day job as well. You're actually a, a music teacher. Uh, I mean, what keeps you hanging on? What keeps you sacrificing so much of your free time, probably even your sleeping time, I'd have thought as well, just in order to keep this thing going? Yeah, it's really the sharing aspect. Uh, For me personally, this might be different for other of our organisers, but like, I thrive in a world of shared culture, shared knowledge, tinkering on things together collaborative environments. And this is true about my music site. It's true about my software interests. It was true when I contribute to Wikipedia. It was true when I contribute to several Creative Commons licensed art projects. It was true when I contributed to OpenStreetMap, the open map of the world that is used in so many places now. It's all part of a the same world, I would say. There is some consistency in in what I like. For me, it's about making the world a a bit of a better place in my own humble way. So, yeah. You make it sound very beautiful, Mark. And I have to say, I'm completely sold on this idea. So what do I have to do if I want to take part? We have a very specific target audience. That is people who are interested in building software or the, the surroundings of that, like documentations, documentation like legal stuff that surrounds the, the software world. So FOSDEM is not for everyone. There's lots of spots where you can discover free and open source software. We try to be as inclusive as we can. I think this reflects in, in our admission policy, no registration required, no entrance fees, recording all our talks uh, for free, streaming them to the parts of the world where it would be difficult to fly over. We try to be very open and accessible, but it is important to realise that we have a target audience that is close to the development world, the software development world. Mark van der Bore there. And should you indeed fit that description of FOSTEM's target audience, then this year's event is being held on the 3rd and 4th of February in Brussels. Check out the FOSTEM website to find out more. Also, a very big thank you to listener Daniel M for tipping us off about the event via the Inside Europe at dw.com address. Now, from the world of urban tech meetups to a very different type of scene altogether, the Italian countryside. For decades, Italy has been struggling with the depopulation of villages in both the north and south of the country. Young, highly educated people leave rural ideas for big cities such as Rome and Milan, and often it is the elderly who are left behind. This was something which really concerned 30-year-old Pietro Micucci, who has a background in advertising, when he left the southern region of Basilicata to go to university in Milan. He saw with sadness that his beloved village back home was dying and decided to return to found the Clinica dei Paesi, or Village Clinic, to heal villages like his own. Angelo van Schaik has been finding out more. 
This little village is called Guardia Preticara and is situated on top of a hill in Basilicata. On a map, that's the region in the soul of Italy's boot. And it's a little gem. Built in yellowish natural stone, narrow streets, little stairs everywhere, really a beautiful village. But, according to Pietro Micucci, Guardia Perticara is a patient who's ill. Depopulation is the main problem. There are only 500 inhabitants left. Sometimes you see an old man pass by. It's a very pretty village, but it's almost deserted. The last bakery shut down last month, so even for their daily bread, the people have to go elsewhere. That's the street vendor, who passes by every now and again in the village. He sells household items like buckets and mops. Italy has around 8,000 municipalities. Two-thirds of them have less than 5,000 inhabitants. Nearly all those small municipalities are in the countryside, both in the poor south and in the rich north. And they are losing inhabitants. Pietro Micucci founded the Clinica dei Paesi, or the village clinic. He and his team treat the villages in a medical way, providing a diagnosis and a cure. We use medical terminology, as it is, in my opinion, very appropriate. The architect becomes a plastic surgeon and the plumber a heart surgeon. Our team is growing and consists of many different people, from artists and designers to bricklayers and roofers. The city hall of Guardia Peticara. Mayor Pasquale Montano says the village is in a precarious situation. It only has a kindergarten and a primary school with 14 pupils. Next year, a few will leave to go to secondary school nearby, and there aren't any new children that will fill their places here. There's a real risk the school will shut down due to the lack of students, and then our village will slowly die. Part of the Clinica dei Paesi project is a local museum. It's run by Mario, a volunteer. The museum is important in terms of rediscovering our history and preserving local culture. In the 1950s, the then Prime Minister said Basilicata was the biggest disgrace in Italy because of the extreme poverty here. At the same time, our region was very interesting for anthropologists because of its archaic society, which hadn't changed for centuries. We need to learn to be proud of that history. And the Clinica dei Paesi tries to promote it through projects that stimulate the people themselves. Change comes from within. Pietro Micucci has studied in Milan, but at heart he's still a country boy. I'm convinced that villages will save the world. Big cities are collapsing, they're too crowded, and traffic is killing them. More and more people are yearning for neighbours who care about their fellow citizens and about the place they live in. If we manage to convince people that that is what it's all about, then no one will leave the villages anymore. The Italian countryside 
has lost almost 20% of its population over the last few decades, and the trend continues. As a result, post offices and schools close, and public transport stops running. La Clinica del Paese is trying to reverse that trend. It's helping small municipalities to get funding to invest in the public services that convince people to stay. In villages like Guardia Perticara, there's a lot of space. The air is clean and houses are cheap. It's just one of the dozens of villages the clinic is trying to heal. Angelo van Schaik, Guardia Perticara, Basilicata, Italy. And on that bucolic note, it is time for this one-time country girl, now far from home, to remind you that I am Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Now, the Estonian city of Tartu is one of 2024's European capitals of culture, which is what we were expecting Ben Batka to be reporting on for us this week. But plans changed, however, when Ben found himself caught up in the final dramatic days of a historic teachers' strike. Last Wednesday, several hundred teachers gathered on the historic town hall square of Tartu. They hadn't come for the opening of Tartu 2024. Instead, they were there to hold a rally for fairer salaries and a more manageable workload. With temperatures around freezing point, school principals, students and trade union representatives gave speeches from a makeshift stage. On placards, slogans like, good work, fair pay, politicians, fulfill your promises, working hours and expectations should be in balance with the salary of the teacher. So this is uh, what is written on there. History teacher Ala Vinichenko explains what's prompted her out of the classroom and onto the streets. This is an illusion that we are working 35 hours per week. There is also a poster which is saying 35 hours are done by Wednesday. Teachers' unions have been engaged in industrial negotiations for months. Initially, Estonia's largest teachers' union, EST Haditu Tötsidjatelit, or EHL for short, had demanded an average gross minimum wage of 1,950 euros per month for teachers in general education schools, which would have meant a salary hike of 11%. Talks stalled, however, largely as a result of disagreement amongst two of the three government coalition parties about who should foot the bill, the finance ministry or the ministry of education. On Tuesday, however, A breakthrough was finally made and the EHL union announced it had accepted a pay hike of 4.1%, roughly in line with the current rate of inflation. EHL spokesperson Jano Isad said he understands that some teachers are disappointed that the salary will only increase by 17 euros per month. But he stressed that for the first time in Estonian history, there will now be a long-term collective bargaining process for education workers. After quite intense negotiations, we decided as a trade union to accept the terms. Yes, not the perfect, not the ideal version, but still much better starting point where we was in November. And the teachers appeared to enjoy broad support, despite the fact that with 70% of educators laying down tools, 
their strike forced thousands of students and many parents to stay home. Angelina and Tehe, both in their 12th and final school year at the Jan Poska Gymnasium, were at last week's Tartu Town Hall Square protest to show their solidarity. I think teachers deserve us, anyone who has a degree, and even more, because they are the ones who are giving the knowledge forward. In my opinion, it is wrong that when our ministers have advisors, those advisors have their own advisors, and even they get more salary than our teachers. I think that the government should really move the money more to the education system. The pay agreement will cost the government 5.7 million euros, around half of what the unions were initially demanding. But it's not just about the money, says EHL spokesperson Jano Isad. So this is not about the 10 million euros, it's more of the respect, attitude, governments toward the teachers. Most of the teachers just don't feel any more appreciated and the messages came from the government have been very arrogant. Isad told me that around one in four teachers in Estonia is a member of a trade union. Membership entails health benefits, legal assistance and discounts at sports clubs, among other things. Striking teachers also receive financial support from the strike fund from the sixth day onwards, namely 50% of their wages retroactively, according to ESET. In 1992, more than 90% of workers were union members. Now, that figure is as low as 6%, making it one of the lowest trade union density among all OECD member states. Estonia's first large-scale teacher strike is over, but the negotiations aren't yet. On February 19th, the trade unions and the Ministry of Education will start the collective bargaining with the aim to gradually increase teachers' average gross monthly wages to 120% of the national average salary by 2027. History teacher Ala Vinichenko says she was prepared in principle to strike for weeks. But due to the collective agreement with the city council, she had to return to teaching after only three days. If we are not standing for our rights at the moment, it will continue and continue and continue. I was participating in a strike already 10 years ago. So, and unfortunately, we are still here and the problems are still the same. Ben Barke, DW, in the Estonian city of Tartu. I am assuming that the spelling on those placards was impeccable. Just time for one final story this week, and it has a holiday feel. That's because a major travel and tourism trade fair called FITUR, which stands for Feria Internacional de Turismo, has just finished in Madrid. This year was the biggest yet, with over 800 exhibitors bringing along over 9,000 companies – and sustainable tourism was the buzzword on everybody's lips. Inside Europe's Ashish Sharma went along to get some ideas. Well, there's a lively atmosphere here in Ephema, Madrid's largest exhibition space outside the centre of the city. Over 150,000 visitors will be trundling through these doors from over 150 nations worldwide. How important is sustainable tourism to these companies? Well, it's high up on the agenda for the organisers. They're focusing very much not just on sustainable tourism for the environment, but also in terms of social sustainability. Hi, my name is Angela Lozano. I'm um, the manager of Fitur at the international area. For us, sustainability is the focus. So here in Fitur, we have different brands that follow different kinds of sustainability. During this edition, we have all this environmental sustainable team that is working with Fitur Next, uh, with the Observatory of Sustainability, which recognizes 
some important facts of environmental sustainability. We recognize the sustainability even on the assembly because you can have a really sustainable booth, but the process has to also be sustainable. This was clear to see. For example, the store for Japan was completely made from recyclable material, which can be dismantled, packed away, and reused at the next exhibition. Bueno, y por último, les dejamos, eh, sí, eh, vamos Since the end of restrictions due to the COVID pandemic, tourism has been on a rapid rise, especially in Europe. Six of the most visited countries worldwide in 2023 were European, with France and Spain first and second. These countries are well adapted to an influx of tourists. But it's been a steep learning curve for one country, which has seen an exponential growth in tourism in the last decade. Iceland only has a population of under 400,000, yet more than 2 million tourists visited last year. It's learning fast how to cope with the numbers, but in a way that's conducive to its culture and environment. So my name is Otni Arnarsdóttir and I'm the account manager at Visit Iceland. Our emphasis has been on distributing visitors around the country. Um, there are seven regions of Iceland and we have three international airports. It has always been an emphasis that decisions within the tourism is often, in, you know, or usually, in a very good conversation with communities. They had meetings with the locals and with the communities, you know, what do we want and what do we want to see and, you know, the focus is on regenerative tourism and there's been a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, opened up their local companies, you know, take tourists up, you know, the glaciers or caves or, so we've, we've seen, of course, growth in, in infrastructure and the impact, you know, has, has been positive. According to a report by the European Union, if global aviation were a country, it would be one of the world's top 10 CO2 emitters. Iberia is one of the leading airlines, but has been working hard to offset its emissions by enhancing its sustainability credentials in other areas. I feel like I need to fasten my seatbelt. The company's director of customer experience, Melanie Berry, revealed to me new initiatives which will be starting in June. We've just launched today these new immunity kits. This is a really good scoop actually because it's the first kit like this in the world. The material is all made from recycled plastic bottles and then the cosmetics inside the bag are made using wine waste. The vineyard where we buy our wine from has shipped the, the waste that's left after they've made the wine and then they've made the immunity kit. Instead of putting one on every seat for the customers, we will offer them a whole kit. And then at the end of the flight, then what we're hoping to do is to recycle everything that's still brand new that's been left on the floor. The bottom line is that since the end of the pandemic, tourism is massively on the rise. This year's FITU was the most attended ever. The organisers and the exhibitors focus largely on sustainability, showing and understanding that if the travel industry wants long-term success, then it's going to have to find ways to protect the very product that it's selling. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. And on that most responsible of notes, we come to the end of the show. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Kathleen Schuster, Nick Martin and sound engineer Jan Winkelmann. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn.